I like the enthusiasm though. You were jumping in. Welcome to 80s Music Exposed, the podcast in which we review all the best albums of the 80s, one month at a time. We will break them down, give you the skinny, and duke it out over whether you should or should not dig these back out again. If you are ready for an 80s music deep dive, from Public Enemy to Wham, Eno to XTC, Madonna, Hair Metal, Reggae, and all points in between, then crank the boombox, turn the Walkman up to 10, and oh, let's go. Now, from the kitchen, Chris and Henry. Welcome to 80s Music Exposed. I'm Henry. And I'm Chris. And we're in, we're looking at the final month. The final month of, of 1980. 1980. We made it. One All year. the way to December. Woo! From Gen- Genesis, January. <laughs> I was about to say Genesis to Revelation <laughs> from January to December. And by the way, this month, we really should get credit for seven records, to be honest. Okay. And you'll see why. Oh, I, I see where you're going with this. Okay. We should get credit for that. I many. didn't think of that. Yeah. Seven records. This is a lot to cover in one month. But I feel like, Henry, I didn't think we'd make it this far, to tell you the truth. Really? So... <laughs> You didn't? I think we're going to celebrate by not going over how and what the criteria are for covering these records. I mean, if, if you, you really listen. Yeah. I mean, you should know. If you don't, go back to the last episode. But, Henry, I am excited to get to the whiskey segment tonight because I really like this whiskey, but I, I've never heard of it before, and I have no idea how the bottle showed up in my house. What? I don't know where it came from. Are you saying you had some party that you don't remember? I don't know. It's, it was a sealed bottle, like the label is un, was unbroken. So I don't know where it came from, but it's called Uncle Nearest. And it's what year are we drinking, Henry? 1856, but 1856. this was not made in 1856. <laughs> There's no way. <laughs> I'm going to say a lot. You're telling me to get the year like... Like it's a vintage. Like you have some fucking whiskey from 1850. That's what I thought it was. Ain't no way. Somebody. Why do you want to burst my bubble? By the way, do you know who Uncle Nearest was? I don't. Well, I let no me idea. tell you. Okay, go for it. Nathan Green. They say the whiskey people, especially people that are in the orbit of Jack Daniels Distillery, say that it was actually Nathan Nearest Green who uh, taught Jack Daniel how to make whiskey. And if this is his recipe, I like it better. You're, you're, you're going there right now. That I like Uncle Nearest's recipe better? I do, too. I like it better I as do. well. I, I hate to say it, but part of it was because I thought this was from 1856. <laughs> <laughs> Take Henry, a sip. Let's go back in time to December 1980. Let's talk about some of the significant events. I'm excited about this this, uh, section here. Um, The first one is on December 4th, 1980, Led Zeppelin officially broke up. I mean, mean, what was the last record they did? Well, John Bonham was was dead. And so they did an album in 1980 called uh, Coda, I believe. 
Yeah, the last one. Right, which they just kind of threw together the stuff from the sessions that they didn't finish, I believe, when Bonham died. I'm not a Led Zeppelin head, so please don't crucify me on Twitter about that. But I think the bigger issue there, Henry, was just how cool it was that they decided they couldn't go on without him, whereas the Who just kept on rolling. And calling themselves the Who. No matter. Despite the death of two. Yes. (laughs) Two members of the Who. And you could argue that the death of their drummer was uh, as big a deal as the death of John Bonham was to Led Zeppelin. Both heavy pounding drummers. I also always thought of it this way, Henry, as a kid, and I don't know if you ever thought of things this way, but it seemed like the 80s broke that way. Like Led Zeppelin was not of the 80s, and they needed to be gone. And the 80s, like swept everything away in 1980. Yeah. Like it cleared the you know, deck. It's interesting that you should say that because I think that that, that idea probably is going to be said a little, a little bit later when we review mm-hmm. one mm-hmm. of the records about mm-hmm. trying to sweep things away, right? Guess what else happened? What else happened? The Bravo Network debuted on December 8th. <laughs> I didn't even know that there was enough cable for there to be a Bravo. Do you remember? Bravo was actually like good stuff. Henry, Magnum P.I. premiered on CBS. Um, I really liked Magnum Did P.I. Did you watch it? And I, Yeah, and I loved it. I love it now. And I'll tell you how good it was, if you don't think it was good. Take any fucking episode of Magnum P.I. and watch it back-to-back with the new Magnum P.I. And then you'll be like, God damn, Magnum <laughs> P.I. was a good fucking show. But, but you're saying that it's not good now. I don't know what the fuck's going on on CBS. I, can I have just a second to rant here? Yeah, go on. Um, go on. I only watch not, Survivor. Does it not seem to you like every show, scripted show, on CBS is filmed with the same fucking cameras yes, by the same yes, director in yes, the same goddamn felt, studio? But I've felt like that about ABC, too. Sometimes. Well, I don't I Probably I would, too. I don't watch enough network. I don't watch it. But, yeah, every show is the same. But I'm like, yeah, they're rebooting Magnum. I loved Magnum. I'll check it out. And then I'm like, this is no different than CSI Dickhead. It's the same or, lenses. Same, same shot. I'm sure there's some same sort of lighting. There's some sort of continuity expectation probably with the network. Um John Lennon died on December eighth. Yep. That's yep. a very significant event. But also here's a little tidbit that I didn't know. I this is how dumb I was. What? Those iconic photos that Annie Leibowitz did, turns out those shot like five hours before he died. That photo shoot was what? on December eighth. Really? So the shot of him curled up naked next was to... Was hours before he got was shot? Was on the day. So the, no shit. the head shot... I didn't of, know that. I didn't either until I started looking into it today. The head shot of John Lennon from that session, which I don't know if you've seen it. It's kind of the famous... I always saw that photo and I was like... Where he was this curled is, up next well, to Well, but there's also a head shot from that sh- session right. that they used on the album, but or on one of his albums. But I always thought, oh, that's what John Lennon when he had turned the corner and was starting to be an old man, looked like cool, like a cool older guy. But that was taken like four hours before he was killed. So I didn't know this until... I should Google that. Yeah. And we reviewed his last album for uh, last month. So go back and right, listen so to that. Right, check that out. So guess what? What's that? We had some uh, a guy contact us on social media. Oh, okay. Oh, we need a little they, housekeeping? Well, no, he wants to talk to us about something. He agrees okay. with us. This is badge seven oh nine oh four three one six. Badge says on Twitter, right? Yeah, that he just listened to our July episode. Okay, and he agrees with us on Joy Division that you can't really express how important they were. Uh, he wanted to talk to us about the ants, though. I don't know that we were fans. 
right. of the ants. Right. He, uh, when he, he was 12 years old, when they broke big in the UK, it was complete media saturation. They were everywhere. The kids were going to school with face paint. Remember Adam Ant had that? Uh, Dirk was his best album period. Is that, that must be, that was the one before. And I don't know if you remember, we talked about, um, I went back and listened to it and you were like, we felt like that was more the art rock version of, uh, the better wild frontier of, of, yeah, that this was more of the commercial version that I, I kept telling you that you would like Dirk better is what I was trying to say. I see. But, uh, he happens to like Kings the best. I do too. He said he was all style, but the music was fine too. Um, no one mentioned, he says this is something we didn't mention was that no one mentioned the Ennio Marconi influence on the guitars. Right. Very spaghetti Western. The last great LP was that he released was Vivilo Rock, Space Age Rock and Roll. Great show, guys. Thanks a lot, Badge. We really appreciate yeah, your, that your is, feedback. That is uh, great. And I'll I, make sure that I go back and give Dirk uh, uh, a listen. Yeah, so thanks for listening. And um, anytime you want to hit us up, and if you hear something that you think we should cover that we haven't covered as well, we're always looking for stuff that you guys want to hear about, not just stuff that... Uh, that we've put on the list. Right. Look at 1981. We've got some slots to fill up. So. Yeah, we do. We do. So uh, hit us up on Twitter. We'll get back to you, especially now that we have social media Megan with us, helping us out with that kind of stuff. We can get that on the show. Yep. So the first record that we're going to cover is called Super Trooper, and that's with a U, Henry. Trooper with a U. Not like the movie Super Trooper. You think they named it after that, I that guy? I was wondering about that, but it's Super Trooper, T-R-O-U-P-E-R, by... I have trouble with this, Henry. Is it ABBA or ABBA? I've always said ABBA. I have too, but I didn't know if that was our southern accent. But you can't pronounce a backward V B. Right, <laughs> right. V. A backward B. Well, why don't we listen to a track? This is Me and I from Super Trooper. you picked that one i knew you were going to say that that's why i picked it what do you like about i'm that? starting to get to the point where i know what you're going to say about which songs i pick let's well t- well tell me tell me why um i i tried to find a song that i liked and it was hard for me to do <laughs> yes and the only other song okay. that i liked and i really liked was called elaine and i realized that that was only a bonus song on the remastered it was the B-side to the hit, The Winner Takes It All, mm-hmm. but it wasn't actually on the album, so I couldn't use Elaine, so I went with Me and I. I guess I've already laid my cards out here on the table. I do not like this record. 
I think it exemplifies what we were talking about earlier. It it sounds like a relic from the seventies to me. Does it? A holdover. I'm really excited because all the research I did says their next record they tried to go crazy weird new wave and it and the band broke up. But I can't wait to hear that record. The visitor when we get there. Yes. Yeah. I, when I was doing the research, I was like, maybe that's a maybe I should give that a listen. Right. Later. And I and I don't want to say Henry. I don't want all the Abba 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 fans to go crazy on me here. I'm not super anti Abba. I just think this one is nowhere near as good as some of the a couple of the ones earlier. And it still sounds like the 70s. And I'll tell you what the biggest problem I had with it. It sounded like a band that was so popular that they just threw out. They're just, they're rolling right now. They're just on the track, just throwing out the songs. But I don't know that they even gave a shit about this one. Or, <clears throat> I don't know. You know, to me, well, there are several solid songs on the record. ABBA is one of those bands that they can write a great melody but put shit lyrics in there and you still kind of have to accept it because of the universe that they've built around themselves. This is so crazy because I, I, I had the exact opposite impression. Really? I thought all their lyrics up until here were shit. This is the first record where I don't know if you noticed, like I'm talking about Elaine and a couple of the other songs, uh, the, the winner take it all is about, that's a good one. Them getting divorced. I like that song. I know. I, I was saying the words in a lot of these songs are... Have you read the lyrics to Elaine? No. It sounds like me. it's a fucking... Like somebody's stalking somebody and getting killed. <laughs> yeah. I don't I'm even not know. saying all their songs are bad. Yeah, but it's like... But it's, it's so creepy because the song is so poppy. Um, so I was the opposite of you. I thought the lyrical content on this record started to kind of get better. Well, like... It, they're like ELO. Right. ABBA and ELO are basically the same kind of band. How dare you? And you, you can, ELO and is ELO, so much better than ELO, ELO, you can even swallow some of their more schlocky, like corny stuff because of what they are. You may not remember this. Uh, my religious uh, upbringing, I, I came up in a family that was Methodist. I don't know if these people were Methodist or not, but they were. there was a big deal about it at my church in the early 80s called Up With People. Oh, yeah. Do you remember this movement? I remember hearing the words and maybe seeing them, but it's I don't know if I knew like anything about it. It's kind of like some sort of insidiously uh, religious group of singer people who tried to be hip, and they toured the country, and they tried to like infuse Christian music with being cool, but... It sounded like ABBA to me. <laughs> <laughs> so I always got up, up with people, people and ABBA confused. You, you had a really bad setup. That's the yeah, problem. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I really struggled with this record. I do, I do recognize there were two number one singles on this record, which is actually kind of ho hum for ABBA because they were just belting them out. Well, I know, well. I know maybe more into the period of the visitor, the next record, which I can't wait to get to. Um, both couples kind of are going through divorces at this point or are already headed that way. Right. One had all, I, one thing I couldn't get straight was that, that apparently one half, I don't know their names. I couldn't pronounce them anyway. Mm-hmm. One half of them divorced in 79. Yes. And that I was, guess they kept working again. Right. And that's the one that wrote winner take, take it all. And I thought it was an interesting quote. I'm sure you saw it because I think it was on Wikipedia, but the, the guy that wrote it said it wasn't about our divorce. It was about another divorce. And then the girl that sang it said, yeah, it couldn't have been about our divorce because yeah. I didn't lose. <laughs> oh, I didn't lose. Oh. <laughs> All right. <laughs> you catch that. Yeah. I couldn't because I didn't lose. But then I don't know if you noticed the next couple got divorced like in 81 and he remarried in the end of 81. 
So oh. there must have been a little something, something. Um, somebody felt somebody something. knew. Yeah, but through that all, I mean, it's not like Fleetwood Mac. Um, that they you weren't can, married. He, but there you was, can hear all their breakup in the record. Ava just keeps on the do-do-doing and the da-da-da. Here's another problem. one of the problems with Ava. If you go and listen to any of those, I mean, I was forced to watch Mamma Mia, right? <sighs> that will ruin you for Ava. <sighs> Some it it could ruin you forever because I mean they redo they put those songs in there and it's like and poorly done at that. One thing that uh, one of the songs that I like on this thing is called "Lay Your Love Lay All Your Love on Me," and I like how it's layered in in the minor key. I don't know how to explain that. Am I? Does that sound right? Sure. And uh, I went back and looked at it, and I think that. Is like the highlight of the record, like artistically. If I had to look at all the songs, that's the one I would pick out to play probably. And it was, they sent all the vocals into a harmonizer and then they, it was to produce like this slightly lower pitch version. And then they fed it back into the input, lowering the pitch of the vocal. And they thought that the chorus sounded like a hymn. So parts of the vocals and the choruses will run through a vocoder, <laughs> right? right? And I guess this maybe was brand new. I don't know. Yeah, back then it had to be close to, to recreate new. the sound of a church congregation singing, but slightly out of tune. That's what it was. Not not minor, just out of tune. Out of tune. Okay. But anyway, I thought that was really cool. I have a lot of negative connotations with Abba that I had to try to work through here. And unlike the Barbra Streisand record at the beginning of the year, you couldn't get over. I couldn't get over. And I apologize. For I think that. the harmonies have always gotten me over otherwise crap music, right. like Def Leppard, for example. We're going to get to. I'm, I'm looking forward. I'm to probably. Def gonna, I'm probably going to lobby. I think to, High and Dry to is to listen the first to High and Dry in '81 next year or our next I, batch. No, right? I can already give you a little spoiler alert. It's already on the list. Oh, okay, good. So yeah, we're so I will it. get a chance to reevaluate that one. But yeah. for some reason, layered vocals always seem to redeem a record to a degree for me. Maybe mm-hmm. it's because I grew up singing songs with a bunch of people, right? But there's something about that that gives. I kind of. I kind of give them a little leeway. Okay. You know? Well, then, obviously, I thought this was my mom's music and I didn't like it. And now I think it's my mom's music and I don't like it. Henry, are you going to recommend this record? Yeah, I'm going to recommend okay. it. Okay. All right. So go ahead and tell us what the next record is, Henry. Okay. Mercifully. Mercifully. We're going we're gonna to regard Sandinista by The Clash. You said it properly. Sandinista. San, I, it has an exclamation mark right. at the end. You have to say Sandinista. It Sandinista. You got to say it like that. (laughs) And the song we're going to play is uh, Police on My Back. Yeah. And here it is.
right, Henry, go. So, you know, London Calling. Classic. Cast a really big shadow. Hard to follow. I don't know if you remember, but I had uh, a vinyl copy of London Calling. And in my feelings, I think, we're locked into that place. And so when I think of them, that's the immediate thing that goes to my head. But no, you're right. Everything about London Calling worked for me and you back when we discovered it. Right. And so that's, it, I can consider this one, ha- that one already have happened, right? Yes. So when you're discovering music and everything, you sort of take that in, but you're also scraping in all kinds of other stuff. I probably got to this record in the 90s, London Calling, that is. And so I immediately moved on to other stuff and really thought I had the clash pegged in my mind as to what they were. When I put Sandinista on, and started doing the legwork for it. I was like, my 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 jaw dropped because it was like this band that I've kind of learned to to love and know. Over this is a triple album, <laughs> like you know, it, for from my perspective, it was like watching people have joy, like and actually love what they do. Yeah, it's um. Well, I've got a quote right off the bat for, I think, and I didn't come up with this, but I, I yeah. found this quote in the research. Uh, quote, on London Calling, they sound like they can do anything. On Sandinista, they sound like they are trying to do everything. Everything. And I think that, I, I think the, the point of, I think Sandinista is a miss, but I, I agree with you. There is this joy and this relish that they have on Sandinista of, you know what? We proved it with London Calling that we're more versatile than just this punk thing that is starting to hem us in and make us feel like uh, there's a boundary and barriers, mm-hmm. which punk was supposed to be the antithesis of to. that. Right. And guess what, guys? We can do everything we want to do. And I hear this joy, like you say, and like, yeah. we're just going to do every type of song we want to do. And we're good at it. And we're fun. It's fun. And we're happy doing it. With that said, didn't need to do a triple album. <laughs> There's a good album in here. Yeah. There's, in fact, there might be a great album in here with some editing. We didn't need a triple record. I disagree. I think that's part of the point. Like, and I think people could argue about this all day long. I think that the sprawling nature of it was the beauty of the whole thing. I feel like now, if you if you went back uh, even, even ten years ago and put out. 20 extra tracks to the amazing record that was Sandinista that was only 11 track. And you had 20 extra from the Sandinista sessions. I would dig it. I couldn't wait to hear those. So I don't, except for doing this show. Have you ever listened to Sandinista all the way through? No, no, man, I didn't. And maybe that was why, because the project has forced me to live and know it. Then I actually got to appreciate it. I, I, I want to appreciate it and I like the joy, but then when I read the story that they were so pissed at CBS that they really decided to do a triple record, then I'm like, well, now you've well, got ulterior motives. There was also more than one thing. Like they were, they toured the shit out of, out of London Calling. Right. They'd gone to so many places in the world and there was a lot of resentment in England about them traveling so much that Mick Jones said. And, um, he said he thought that, the people at home would really be glad. Like you get too big for your britches. They want to rip you down. I think that's part of the punk thing too. Like if you, the selling out, like if you got too big, I know even with London calling, there was initially a lot of people, especially in the rock press that were like, that's not punk. 
And it was like, why did the clash have to be one particular thing? You know what I mean? Like, that's, why? And I think that's something this, that this record was trying to prove. I, but it could have proved in Henry and 11 track. Yeah. But, but instead, they took the hit and gave you three records instead. You're welcome. And no, I don't look at it that way. I look at it the other way. It's like if they I took they took a hit like royalty wise too. And if you turned in a novel to me that was twenty eight hundred pages and there was a great four hundred page novel in there, I think you owe it to yourself to go. Let's wheedle this down. I say that Sandinista would be one of the top one hundred records of all time if there had been eleven tracks. I also think it for me it was a chance to get to know a band better that I really. It has a lot of great that qualities. I had, them locked, I had them locked in in, yes. in carbon, you know. No, it, it has a lot of great uh, qualities to it. I don't know that the length does it for me. Here's another thing he said they would do. Strummer said that when they were working in the studio that he he came up with this idea called the spliff bunker. Did you hear about this? No. Where he, he said that it was a place for where people could hang out that weren't in the control room. Like people, people could spill stuff and, you know, mess with people. Getting, it's not conducive to work getting recorded properly. So he said that they would move, they, they would take the spliff bunker and move it as far away as they could from geographically from the studio control room so that they could go outside, work out whatever the hell else they were going to do that day. And bring it back in. So they were leaving, going smoking dube, and deciding outside. All right, what are we going to do next? And they were, but they were so jacked because they'd been working their asses off. They're probably doing cocaine too. Who knows? Who knows? So the work pace was probably like this. They didn't know how to stop. They didn't want to stop. Right. And I, I can't think of anything more punk than that. Like if you're if you've got it, fucking get it right now while you got it. While you while CBS will pay for it, does any would any major label record company do that today? They had to force them to pay for it. I can't even imagine Taylor Swift asking to put a triple record yeah, out now. Nobody who does it. Nobody does. The best thing you can think of is maybe when Beyonce will drop any record she wants to, whenever, on the sly. Another another story I wanted to mention <clears throat> about around this time. Did you hear about the whole where uh, I think it was Paul Simonon, the bass player. Uh, couldn't play was it was it he that couldn't play on this uh parts of this record yes and they brought in ian drury mm-hmm. um ian drury the blockheads yes and so they kind of helped on um a couple of the songs and mm-hmm. then they were mad because they didn't get credit for it and i think that yes. kind of led to something um that yes tension in the instability band. down the road right that kind of uh festered for a while and kind of helped to break up the clash because I don't ever remember I, as a kid, I remember combat rock. My brother had it and I was thinking, this is the greatest band in the world. And they were already gone. By yeah. The time. They were already had already, yeah. you know, done their, done, done their thing. I totally say, uh, I admire this record. I admire what they're trying to do. And I hear the I hear the joy that they have. Yeah. And again, the clash is beyond reproach to me. This is like trying to criticize yeah, the no. Beatles, but, 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 but I, this is my least favorite Clash record. When you get to the end, it's not my least favorite Clash album. The last one that they did was horrid. I, I take that back. I haven't cut the crap. 
Yeah. I haven't heard cut the crap. Well, this week. So I don't know. I don't want to, I don't, you know, there's been a lot of stuff about the clash going on lately. I'll just say, say that. Like, so I've had the opportunity to go back and look. Yeah. I, 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 so, I should rephrase. I haven't heard <laughs> cut the crap. So this is my I, least favorite. I was, blowing, I was blowing leaves off the thing and I was like, okay, well, I'm going to go find the stuff that I didn't hear again. Maybe it's stuff that like this that I really love. Cut the crap was like abysmal. There's a whole story about it. Okay, well we'll get there. I'm sure. Maybe but. we should because I could sit here and talk about these guys all for like an hour because it's so much fun. Well, I am not. Shockingly, I'm not going to recommend this record. Yeah. I think it's too long, and I think London Calling is such a better record. You're, Let me you're, ask your opinion of the end of it. Sure. The the t- I went like this at first. Like, why did you put career opportunities at the end with the children's voice? Why? That that truly was one of the a middle finger. I think so, way, and I right? think I I kind of feel and, like until I read that story about their being so upset with CBS, which they had the right a right to be, yeah, because London Calling was so big. But I felt like I was like going out of your way. Like, how are you really? Gonna, are you really going to hurt CBS records by doing that? They took their own royalty hit, so who who got hurt? Right, that's what I mean. It was almost all right. Another split uh, opinion. I'm pro. Chris was like, not nah, one feeling. Yep. All right, Henry, the next record we're going to cover is called 925 and Odd Jobs by Dolly Parton. And the song I'm going to play, Shocker of Shocker, is 9 to 5. Shower and the blood starts pumping Out on the streets the traffic starts jumping With folks like me on the job from nine to five Working nine to five So, Henry, you want to know why I played 9 to 5? Why? Because that is a seminal song of the 80s, and God damn it, I hated every other song on this record. <laughs> okay. You know. I'm having a bad month. I am having a bad month so far. Yeah. What is it to say about 9 to 5? 9 to 5 is a great song. 9 to 5 and Odd Jobs is a terrible record. And it's... I will tell you why. I don't know if there's this thing going on where so these people that write songs in Nashville at this point are trying to do this crossover juice Newton, Eddie money. We can make it on rock radio and make it on. And they're using all these weird. I don't know if you notice they're like using country music instruments, but they're trying to do new wavy type sounds with it. Oh really? And I feel like they're writing these middle of the road, trying to appeal to everybody's songs. And it's like, Again, I guess I'm I'm old school. Is that, Dolly Parton is like a country legend. Let her do country songs. This was her 24th album. Good God. And this is in the 80s. This is another. I, I think, Henry, we have a trend in 1980. This is another one of those records where we've got a country legend now, at, putting out a record by country, Nashville people writing songs for me, and it just doesn't At the work. time, apparently, and I don't know enough about Dolly Parton to judge, but at the time, they were relieved 
that she didn't sound like a wind-up toy. That she didn't sound like she wound up and silly. I mean, even even Henry, like you want, I want to commend her for doing. Like I'm going into this, getting ready to listen to it, and I want to commend her for doing a concept record. But then I realized the only reason it's a concept record is because somebody whispered in her ear, "We've got a hit with Nine to Five. Let's make another, a bunch of more work songs, songs about work, and then you'll have an album." And she's like, "Did you? Oh, okay, sure. Did you catch House of the Rising Sun?" I call it that. I don't know what the hell she it's doing on the record. She sang the hell out of it, but the guy that produced the record, by the way, the guy... And, and by the, the way, guy, Henry, that, that song is the epitome of this crossover weird instrumentation thing. So, she did sing the hell out of it, though. She sang it, but Mike Post ruined it, I think. I think the music the ruins the that, whole the, album. You know who Mike Post is, right? The right. guy that produced it. He's the guy that did all the music for Hill Street Blues... And he he did TV soundtracks, which That's is that is, is that corny '80s sound right. that all this music has, and it ruined the whole record. But the keyboard sounds on House of the Rising Sun are abysmal. And they not, could have actually made that a good song. They're weird. They're not just a. They're and they're not it, weird. It, it's a, not even in keeping with the flavor it's of not, the song. And it's did not, you notice? Yeah, that? it's not weird in a good way. It's not weird like Kraftwerk weird. So I thought that was interesting. I felt like. I felt like she didn't even know that that's what that was going on, though. I'm not sure she did. The I'm best song. I the, feel like the guy gave her a bunch of songs, and she just sang them as as well as she could sing, which is great. But I don't this work concept thing. I'm not even sure she was down with it or in on it. She wrote nine to five, which is the best song on the record. She also wrote Working Girl. Did you catch that one? Yes, I did. Did you think of what I thought? Like prostitution? That's the first thing. But apparently, I mean, do you think that's what she meant? I don't I, think she did. See, I thought she did because I thought the only songs on here that are any good are the ones she wrote and that that was the double entendre. <laughs> I don't know. I hope so. And Which she, is my and next she wrote, question, Henry. Why didn't she write the whole record? Why did she let people help her or do know. covers? She wrote Poor Folks Town, too, at the end. And you know, House of the Rising was Sun the was released as one of the singles off this record. Was it? Yeah, it was the second single. It was not... It was uh, it wasn't representative of the song the right way. It might have shown she can sing. She oh, but of course. it ruins. I never say she but can't it ruins sing. the the song. I also want to say keyboard on it. I also want to say that she can write songs. I don't. I'm not disparaging her ability to write songs. I just think this record is a miss because of what the idea was. It's it feels like I don't know if you it felt this way to you, Henry. It felt like a money grab off of the success of the movie and her acting just by calling it that. Nine to five and odd jobs. I, I'm silly. Hey. And we've got to throw a bunch of songs together quickly to capitalize. And what do we, let's do a concept record about work. It was her first, first debut as an actress. And she was great, by the way. She's great in that movie. If you watch that movie, you're like, she's, she's holding her own with Jane Fonda, no problem. Um, Dark, she's a great actress. Dark as a Dungeon wasn't bad. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna give this my third pass of the episode. I don't think it's worth going back and listening to it unless you just love the song Nine to Five. But then I would just watch the movie. Yeah, pass for me too. All right, Henry, what's our next record? Okay, our next record is going to be the Fame soundtrack. You for some reason you have that listed as Irene Cara, but well, the reason I did that was it, she sang but, most every fucking song on this piece of shit, didn't she? Stop telegraphing your opinion. <laughs> This this album from this person. We are going to play a song called "I'm Losing You." I wanna be bad. 
So for every one of you out there, just a little secret. We did not play I'm Losing You because I couldn't stand to listen to that. I would have preferred I would have preferred you play the one the most ridiculous song off the album. Okay, let's which was about the dog. Let's just start over and we'll do that. We'll play that. Let's just start over and we'll play the song about the dog for Henry. Henry, what's our next record? <laughs> you should leave it on there. We're going to listen to the Fame soundtrack. Oh, really? I was excited about this one. I bet you were. I could tell. I knew that Irene Cara sang a lot of the songs, so I kind of attributed it to her. Is that correct? Actually, I think the record was um, produced by a guy. His name is Michael Gore. Michael Gore. So let's give Michael Gore some credit for this as well. Thank you, Michael Gore. Henry, what song the are we going to play? The song we're going to play is the one about the dog. <laughs> <laughs> um, just play, play the real song, man. The only one people care about. I'm gonna live forever. Here it is. I guess I have to. We have to cover this record because I read the criteria. All over it. She is all over it. She was this. Um, she was an actress in the movie. Mm-hmm. And a singer. Continue. What else can you say about the Fame soundtrack? <laughs> what else can I say? I will say that it's one of the first 
I know that it's one of the first soundtracks that employed digital audio. Let me look at my notes. I have the word yuck. (laughs) Much of its music was recorded in New York on a digital system that digitally encoded two channels onto a video signal, then recorded it to three-quarter inch videotape. Great. So here's what else I'm going to say. So, Henry, I do have a diatribe about this. So what I dislike about Fame the Movie, Fame the Television Show, and Fame the Album. You watched the TV show too, didn't you? Because I had a Don't little, lie, because I, I did. I had a little sister, and <laughs> she loved it. And I, as far as I could tell, all girls from the age of six to like eight loved Fame. Cool. Here's my problem. To me, that made that represented art school, art college. In the completely wrong light, in that like schmaltzy, it's like it's too hot. Yeah, that Broadway like la, you know that kind of shit. Which, just to make a, my rant complete here, I think millennials identify with way more than our generation. With fame, well, with that style, like I don't know. I, this is going way off topic, but have you have you gone to the movies lately? And they're doing these little Coke ads before the movie, and they're having these two kids from art college go. I'm I'm Joan and I'm Neil and this is our ad for Coke. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And it'll be some. It'll be. It's, it's like a stupid. fucking fame episode. It's, it's like stupid. a bunch of colorful kids sitting around. And all of a sudden, everybody starts breaking into song and dance. Now, when we were kids, if you were artistic and you wanted to go to art school, it was because everyone there were going to be a bunch of strung out ballerinas. <laughs> there was going to be a bunch of dudes on heroin that played music. There was going to be some um, actors who <laughs> were about to kill themselves, and it was going to be a lot of fun. This fame shit made it all out. I'll tell you what it is. What? It's the same thing that American Idol is doing to what being a musician is. It makes people think that, oh, being a discovered musician means going on American Idol and learning how to be uh, whatever the fuck that Over, is. Overwrought. Right. Crap. So yeah. I even picked up on that when I was a kid with fame. I was like, this is that's not what, what art that's school what is it, about. That's why it felt uncomfortable. And then you listen to the soundtrack. You couldn't couldn't really identify why it made you feel uncomfortable, but it did. The show, from what I remember, tried to be a little gritty, didn't it? Like, oh, to get this, you're going to have to work really hard. Dig down. But all the kids were find it in them. All the messages like you need to find it in you. But everybody was still like that kind of Oklahoma art art. You know, like oh Oklahoma kind of art school kind of crap. Remember that song? I sing the body electric. Didn't that make you just want to like, ugh? I think Walt Whitman would have too. You know what I mean? <laughs> Imagine I if you play, hey, Walt, it. we got this song. He did the poem. Review. I sing the body electric, right? Didn't he do that? He did the poem. You should Look what we did to it, Walt. Don't you love it? Hey, Walt. So suck on this, Walt. We, we think it's a dog. Um, I think it might actually It's be. iconic though, right? I mean, if you want to get an idea of what it was like, I mean, couldn't you say that the Fame soundtrack was? You know, not to, I, I don't want to preview it too much, but just to give you guys uh, um, a little taste of what's coming on our year-end episode, this record may be nominated as Chris's worst record of the he, year, 1980. Chris doesn't like musicals to begin with, so this is already a hard sell. And if you're going to get schlocky with it, it ain't, ain't going to do not much for nobody. Henry, the next record we're covering is by The Jam, and it's called Sound Effects. And thank God we've made it to this record. We moved on. <laughs>
we're going to play Set the House Ablaze. Finally, an album that I can recommend. Now you can stretch out, right? I really didn't. I was scared doing my research this week because I was like, I may not be able to recommend a record this whole month. And I'll tell you something else. I'm not a big fan of the jam, so I wasn't looking forward to doing this record. I first came to the jam from a cover that Morrissey did of a song called That's Entertainment. Oh, you stole my thunder. That is on this record. So I kind of backed into the jam. I always thought of the jam just as who uh, uh, rip off or the kinks rip off. I just think of Paul Weller because I know that he was in it. Like I know Paul Weller is a solo guy. Well, you knew that before you knew the jam kind of. Yeah. And I knew, and this is funny because I knew the style council when I was a kid. Oh, really? So (laughs) I thought – the jam was just the band that the guy from the style council was in. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So one of the things I want to do with this record is I really like this record. I also want to compare it to this record in my mind is what, so this record is like post punk. This is what the police were trying to pretend to be really in my mind, but the police were a bunch of posers because they were actually really good classically trained musicians who didn't really give a shit about this kind of music. They were just trying to glob on uh-huh. and ended up and, and let me not, before I get bad Twitter, I love the police and they turned into their, when they decided to do their own thing, they were great. But if you listen to the first couple police records, I was like, Oh, this is what they were trying to do. The jam did it so much better. Then you throw on top of it, Henry, all the political stuff, mm-hmm. which I kind of was not aware of, um, at the time. I think this record's great. It, it all fits together. All the songs are. There's a lot of good power pop songs on here and everything has a message. Hey, class. Reliable record. Hey, class. You Do a little editing, should. get it down to 10 songs. <laughs> you too can be the jam. Save it for the, save it for the box set. <laughs> right. That's what you yeah, say. Yeah, that's what I'm save saying. Save it for the box save set. Save it for the box set. Um, <laughs> I also want to mention Henry, the mod phenomenon in England, which is an, um, I know you brought up the Twitter guy at the beginning of the episode. I yep. think it's something that never hit the U.S., but it kind of has never died in England. It started with like the kinks and the who. The jam definitely carried that on. Paul Weller still does. Um, the Stone Roses carried that on. Even now, yeah. there's a lot of mod. Hell, uh, doesn't Johnny Marr still dress like a mod? Definitely. So I think yeah. it, um, the jam were kind of like the torchbearers for mod in the early 80s. And thing. You know, I kept comparing it to the rock pile record that we trashed so hard. Really? In my mind, when I said compared it, I was like, okay, this is what they should have done. Okay, this is the way it should have gone off. 
And I think it's the, that minor sort of soul influence in it. You know, everything that I read about it said that they they claimed um, Off the Wall as an influence. And I couldn't put my finger on it until I started listening to the beats. Let me ask you this, I just so I'm clear with what you're saying here. Yeah. Were you saying that about the jam record or about the rock pile Oh, about uh, the jam. Okay. Um, and I kept thinking, well, maybe rock pile was some white guys trying to approximate some kind of soul something in there. I don't know. But maybe the the jam did it we, better. We that, know. For some reason, I kept thinking about, as the jam were doing it, I was thinking, boy, I really trashed that rock pile record for this. Well, you know, you know? he broke up the jam because he wanted to do this soul thing. And yeah. the other guys in the jam did not want to do that. And the style I council, that. I don't know if you knew this, was him and one of the guys from Dexie's Midnight Runner. No, I didn't know that. Yeah, so I think the soul thing was a big influence on him. But gosh darn it. I think it all works here like in a power pop. I want to keep saying power pop. Yeah, because yeah. I think I really respect power pop. Like um, As an, yeah. big stars is a big, like an American version of that. And this is, I kept thinking about uh, big stars first record. Yeah. Uh, number one record. I really liked the chimey guitars all over. Right. It. Uh, it just solid from beginning to end. The cover of the record has all these they're covers of BBC sound effects records. So the, the record's called sound effects, right? The sound, but, but, but the cover is a, like a pastiche of a bunch of BBC sound effects records, which I thought was pretty kind of punk. Really. Yeah. So at the, at the time, Henry, I never, I never heard the jam back when that came out, but uh, now I was pleasantly surprised and it is definitely one that I would recommend. Yeah, I would recommend it too. It was produced by this guy named Vic Coppersmith Heaven. How cool a name is wow. that? Vic Coppersmith Heaven and the jam produced it. His real name is Victor Smith, but that guy worked on, he was an engineer for Cat Stevens for the Rolling Stones, Let It Bleed. He, he worked on Honky Tonk Women, that song. Joe Cocker's with and, a little help from my friends. And this was their fifth so, record? Yes. Okay, so at this point, they were kind of, they had enough clout to co produce yeah. with him. I really thought it was badass the way they totally stole the bass line from Taxman and wrote a different song around it. I know, I know, right? Was, it was so on the nose that I was like, yeah, that's, that's the kind of punk stuff I like to hear. Well, I think we may find out from our listeners in the same way, again, as the guy, um, I can't remember his name, from Twitter earlier in the episode, but I think the jam were a phenomenon in England uh, way more than what we know. Like, I, I think if there's if we have listeners right now in England, they're like, duh, fucking <laughs> right. jam, dude. <laughs> yeah. um, that but, were, they were just now starting to dig into them. Right, yeah. but really over here, the, uh, Henry and I, Henry and I, uh, we bet we did we did back into it like we knew Paul Weller as a solo artist way more than yeah. we even associated him with the and, jam and when you hear, I knew and that Morrissey song we were like I knew that's entertainment was a cover and it wasn't until I started looking it up that I realized it was the jam right but I still didn't have access to the record and I still didn't know what it was until I went back and and I had streaming available right to hear it um and I. I, I I actually thought too this band would really appeal to you, Henry, because yeah. listening to it, it I was, thought it sounded like what I would imagine if Billy Bragg was cool would sound like. Yeah, but I also heard "Guided by Voices" all in that stuff. I did too. I all over. I was like, I was like, man, they directly like lift from the jam almost. The one, the fucked up thing about this project is that it gets me hooked onto something else cool, and then I got to go listen to everything. 
Well, and also you the know, problem with that is you've got to uh, start doing your research for the for next, the next episode. one. That's the thing is that I could spend all I spent all this time. I you know I got my my work done early, and then got into the clash thing, and I was oh oh god I'm I'm in it for three hours now. Now I'm listening to podcasts and I'm doing all kinds of stuff. <laughs> you know, but anyway, it's really cool. Well, Henry, let's uh, let's go ahead and uh, I think it's time for us to get to Megan's mixtape segment, right? everyone this is megan with your mixtape for december 1980 henry and chris had a lot of fantastic albums to review and discuss for this episode including albums by dolly parton the jam uh the clash which i mean of course how can you go wrong with the clash sandinista it's a great album it's triple album so it's kind of a mixed bag um but overall very ambitious and very great because the timing is kind of impeccable, I wanted to mention the podcast on Spotify right now. It's called Stay Free, The Story of the Clash. Chuck D narrates it, and it's really interesting. Um, I used to be like a Clash super fan, so this is right up my alley. But even if you don't really listen to the Clash that much or aren't super familiar, it's really well done and very interesting. It kind of just goes over the band's history and career they're very detailed. Like I totally forgot that uh, the slits went on tour with the clash. So it was cool. Even as a fan that knows a lot about the band, uh, there were still little gems in there that I'd kind of forgotten about the album that I'm going to pick for December, 1980. It's, it's a bit of a deep dive. Um, I'm kind of curious to see if anybody out there even knows about it, but it's a live album. Uh, it's called Toya, Toya, Toya by the artist uh, Toya, which I think that was the name of her band, actually. And she's this English singer. Uh, she had a pretty big career in her home country, actually, but I, I don't think she ever really caught on um, in the state. But this album, it captures a show in Wolverhampton, which is probably one of the most English-sounding uh, city names I think I've ever heard. And it was also filmed for like a UK like television documentary. She's not for everyone, um, her like style of singing, but she's kind of like a Susie Sue or like Kate Bush character uh, a little bit. You know, like I feel like in the early 80s, artists kind of, they cultivated this very specific image, which, you know, it's cool. But um, I think, you know, in Toya's case, it kind of, um, she might have pigeonholed herself a little bit. Um, although she did have a successful career into the 80s, just not so much in the U.S. She had really just started her career when this was recorded. So it does sound a bit raw, but I actually I kind of like that. And there's just, it's very weird. Like some of the songs on here, like Neon Womb, um, just very strange. Like um, even now, I mean, I can't imagine back in 1980 what it sounded like and the people that listened to it. It's pretty interesting to me. There are some fast-paced tracks on this album, along with kind of some slow, like almost like sci-fi kind of prog rock tune. So it's a little all over the place. Um, I'm not saying that it's a perfect record, but if you're feeling a little experimental, I'd say check it out. And I got my copy on vinyl um, pretty cheap. Um, that's really the only reason I even know about it is I think I got it in like 
the bargain bin at like a local record shop or something. And I just wanted to take a chance because, Hey, for like a couple bucks, maybe I'll find a really great record. And I'm pretty pleased with it overall. Uh, the release date on it, I found a lot of like differing kind of release dates for it. Um, some of them like November 28, 1980, others December. And then even one, it was like 1981, but I'm pretty sure um, this was released in December 1980. The concert itself was recorded in June 1980, but, you know, and if it wasn't released in December 1980, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I tried. Because we're at December 1980, that means that we're probably going to have um, some year-end uh, playlists coming up, which is it's exciting because we had a lot of great albums in 1980 and it was a great way uh, to kick off the show. I'll be posting the Spotify playlists for um, Henry for December 1980. So he put together all the albums they discussed in this episode um, in one handy Spotify playlist so you don't have to uh, seek those records out by yourself. And I'll also include my mixtape for you, which will um, have my picks from the records they listen to and then also this Toya 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 record. Thank you so much for listening. We want to hear from you, uh, so feel free to follow us on social media. Uh, you can find us at Twitter um, at 80s Exposed and then at 80s 374 on Instagram and Facebook. I hope you enjoyed my mixtape. See you next time. Whoa, Henry, that, that, is, you, that is a deep dive. I've never even heard of Toya. So I pulled it up on the way over here. I, I get a I little advanced listen. When she name-dropped Kate Bush, I'm like, like I'm all damn. in. But I'm like, I've never heard this. I haven't either. She's got other records, too. By the way, it's Toya, T-O-Y-A-H. Right. If you're trying to look it up. Spell that. Uh, T-O-Y-A-H, <laughs> right? Yep. And it's... That uh, the weird thing is, I guess because of when it came out, she recommended the live album Toya Toya Toya. She does have other; she has studio albums. I, uh, also, that Clash documentary she mentioned, um, I yep, haven't seen I held it yet, off I mentioning can't wait that to see it. Have you Have you watched it? Uh, yeah, uh, it's a it's a podcast. It's part one, two, three, four, four part four now. Okay, so it's a it's a pod. Okay. It is a pod, and uh, she said Chuck D from. She didn't mention Public Enemy, but Chuck D from Public Enemy is the host. Wow. He draws a lot of correlations between Public Enemy and The Clash. Awesome. I can't wait to hear it. And uh, and it's really good. It's well, really good. Well, thanks, Megan, for that. And thanks for the deep dive and making us look bad because we didn't we didn't know about Toya. <laughs> I know. Um, <laughs> and I noticed how you didn't mention the Fame soundtrack at all. Hmm. Interestingly. Luck, uh, luckily, in her segment, she can just skip <laughs> she can over. She that. Right. Okay, so Henry, uh, let's let's go ahead and give our picks of the month. And this is our last month to do it for the year 1980. It's going to be the one I love. It's going to be Sandinista. Sandinista. Get for in Henry. there and do the hard work for Joe and the boys. Well, it won't be it won't be hard or a shocker for you to figure out what mine is because I only recommended one record this this month, and it's the Jam Sound Effects. Um, I think it's a great record, and that's my pick of the month. Well chosen. You absolutely couldn't go wrong with that either. All right. Go ahead and wrap us up. Henry. Many thanks to our show producer, Greg Levin. And if you like the way we sound, you can talk to him at U-R-B-N-D-W-E-L-L-R, Urban Dweller, on Instagram or at NBC Greg on Twitter. We're thankful to have him on our team. Also, thanks to uh, Megan Maddox, 
newest member of our team. So if you want to start a social media argument with us, you'll probably be arguing with her. Also, if you like our show or you like the records we're choosing, please rate and review us on iTunes. You can also listen on Spotify and Stitcher. Share it with your friends. You can chat us up on Twitter at 80sexposed. Nice. (laughs) Or 80smusicexposed at gmail.com. Guess what, Chris? What? I made you a mixtape. (laughs) 